person and he would have been seen as unrighteous before God. But as we'll see that his heart or his attitude really is in the right spot here. Showing us that God cares as much about the heart as well as our actions. So join with me in reading Luke 18 verses 9 through 14. And as we read this, I want you to think about who you identify with most in this story. So please stand out of respect for God's word. It'll be up on the screen if you need to follow along, or you can look at it your own Bible, personal device. Uh, if you do need a copy of the scripture, there is some back on the um, hospitality table, and you guys are free to take that home with you and enjoy it. This is what is the, the word says. He, being Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Fully devoted followers of Christ should not trust their own righteousness, nor despise others, but rather show humility as they approach God. See, lucky for us, Luke, in his very detailed writing, gives us the purpose statement for this parable to help us to understand it. Verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. In other words, don't be self-righteous and don't look down on others. And so these are the two negative characteristics, the two negative attitudes that we should not have in our lives especially as we approach God in prayer. And so we're going to look a little more in depth to try and flesh out what exactly do these attitudes look like? How do they manifest them in our lives in hopes of exposing them in our lives? So point one, don't be self-righteous. Don't be self-righteous. Dictionary.com defines self-righteousness as confidence in one's own righteousness, especially when smugly moralistic and intolerant of the opinions and behaviors of others. Now, I kind of like uh, the Urban Dictionary.com uh, uh, a little bit better because it defines it in a way that gives it, I think, a little more bite. It says, a self-righteous person acts superior to his peers because he believes his moral standards are perfect. And 
just in case you didn't know, it also goes on to add, uh, moral smugness is condescending by nature and is usually found offensive by others. So in case you didn't know, there's your freebie of the day, all right? People don't like self-righteous people. Hmm. <clears throat> now, biblically speaking, self-righteousness is the thought that we can somehow generate within ourselves a righteousness that will be acceptable to God. This most commonly looks like legalism, right? If I'm good enough, God will accept me. Or I have to do all these good things, and if I sin, I lose my salvation, or God is mad at me, right? Legalism. I'm sure all of us have uh, know somebody that struggles with legalism, and we've seen the ugliness of legalism. And on paper, most mature Christians would recognize the error of the thought that we are saved by our actions, especially when we hold this up in light of the gospel. But because of our sin nature, it is a constant temptation for all of us to believe we are or can be righteous in and of ourselves. We, we think that somehow we can earn favor with God by what we do. And because of this constant temptation, it often slips into our lives without us realizing it. Now this sin commonly manifests itself in two ways. First, we think we are righteous because of who we are. And secondly, we think we are righteous because of what we do. And we see this in the Pharisee's prayer. His opening line in verse 11 goes like this. Thank you that I am not like the rest of men. And then he lists off several people considered wicked. They have a reputation of being evil. And so the Pharisee is priding himself um, in who he is. His standing as a Pharisee. Pharisees were the religious elite of the day. They knew their, their Bible very well, right? They were the kind of the top dog. They were even the leaders of the Jewish religion at the time. There's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were kind of the two parties that ruled over the Jewish uh, religion. And so these, these guys were known for being just sticklers for the law. They knew the law forwards and backwards, and they upheld it, right, rigorously. They, they even went above and beyond it, as we'll see with this Pharisee, but they also wrote tons and tons of other laws, pretty much making it impossible to be righteous before God. See, he was measuring his righteousness by his own standards. So he was really counting on other people's approval as well, right? Other people saw him and so he had this reputation of doing good. Um, and I think this is where the Urban Dictionary definition really shines, right? He thinks he is superior by his moral standard. And his moral standard is perfect. But the problem is he's using his standard rather than God's. See, he's really trying to be saved by his good works, but on a bell curve, right? You all remember this from school. 
as long as I'm better than these other people, then I'm righteous and I'll have favor with God. And perhaps this is in quantity of sin or quality of sin, right? We, we either say, well, at least I don't sin as much as that person. Or, or we pick out a sin that we don't struggle with and we say, well, at least I don't commit that sin, right? We, we, we've somehow made this scale of what sin is acceptable and what sin is not acceptable. And as we see just over the course of time, this is always changing by the world's standards, what the world defines as worst sins. And because of this, we often have this smugness. We put on this air that, well, I'm just a more mature Christian than that person, right? Or we think that, well, God's happy with me. God, God likes me more than that person. God's going to answer my prayers more than that person because, you know, <laughs> I'm a good guy. But the Bible clearly says that we are all sinners. All have fallen short of God's glory. All, man, all men stand guilty before a holy God and deserve death. Just, just read the first few chapters of Romans. Paul spends a lot of time really to prove this point. Now, in his context of where he is writing to was with the Jews and the Gentiles and the Jews thinking that they were better and that somehow they would escape God's judgment because of who they were. Today, this often looks like, well, God's going to save me because I go to church. Or God's going to save me because I was baptized. Or God's going to save me because I grew up in the church and my parents are really good Christians. Or I'm saved because I belong to a certain political party. Sometimes we think we are saved because we don't smoke, we don't drink, we don't play with face cards, we don't dance. But this is not what saves us. This is not what makes us justified before God. Like I said, many of us know this. And hopefully nobody is basing their salvation on their good works. If so, come talk to me, come talk to some of the elders. We'd love to tell you about this wonderful thing called the gospel. All right? But what about God's favor? What about God hearing and answering your prayers? Do we think that because we go to church, because we gave an offering, because we said a prayer, that God has to answer it the way that we want him to answer it? Do we think that God needs to bless us and that our life needs to go perfect and happy because we are Christians? Do we think that because we did these things, we are better than our brothers and sisters who didn't show up to small group this week or to prayer meeting? I had this thought growing up a lot when I first became a Christian. It's kind of the other side of the coin for pride, right? The Pharisee was saying, look how good I am. You know, look at all the good stuff I did. Where I was 
Look how wretched I am. God can't possibly love me. God's not going to hear my prayers. Oh, this thing went wrong in my life because of sin in my life. But you see, this is just the opposite side of pride, right? When we are humble, we have a correct view of ourselves. And so if we are prideful, we're either saying, look at me, look how great I am. Or we're saying, look at me, have pity on me, look how wretched I am. This is the wrong perspective. This is the wrong thinking of who God is and how God works. Hopefully you can see the the two sides of the coin there. Because ultimately, I was like the Pharisee and I was basing God's love and his blessings on who I was and what I did. And what I did, this is the second error of self-righteousness that we see in the Pharisee. He is relying on his works and his good deeds to earn that favor with God. So not just who he is, but then also on what he did. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes on all that I get. And and hopefully you're seeing like who you are and what you do are, are very closely related. Right? But he expresses these two practices, tithing and fasting, to show us the extra effort that he has put in, the above and beyond he has gone in the law, right? But these two acts stand to show, like, he really is everything good, he thinks. He, he's counting, right? He's check, 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 right? See, he's going above and beyond because the law only required that people fasted on the Day of Atonement, which was once a year. Day of Atonement is where they slaughtered, did all the big sacrifices, they slaughtered a sheep, they put all their sins on the sheep, sent it out into the wilderness. That's where we get the escape goat from, right? So once a year. But he did it twice a week. He's a special kind of Christian. And he also is tithing on everything. So not just the things that were required by the law, like income and crops and stuff like that. Like He was even tithing his herbs, right? He, he made sure God got his 10% of the salt, 10% of the pepper, 10% of the paprika. I mean, you really think he's going above and beyond. And even his posture, right, as he goes into this prayer, he, he, he's not only coming into it arrogantly, but, but everything he's doing is to show how good of a prayer he is, right? How he just comes up to God. He's out in the pu- he's out in public where everybody can see. Like, oh, yep, that guy's a good Christian. Look at him up there. He's all praying to God, man. God's gonna bless him. He's doing such a good job, right? Just another work. See, the Pharisee's looking at his actions all wrong. He's looking at them from a quid pro quo relationship. If I do this, then God will do that. He's viewing his actions as the things that justify him rather than the grace offered by God. His relationship with God is more of a punch list rather than an act of faith. What I mean is the Pharisee thinks if he does all the right things, if he checks off all the right boxes, God's going to be happy. God's going to listen to his prayers. 
or he'll get into heaven. So what about you? Are you living your life as a checklist rather than living out these acts of obedience of faith? Is your motivation to earn favor with God or is your motivation out of love for God? Are you relying on the bell curve to get you into heaven? Are you hoping that you're just simply better than other people, more moral, you do more nice things, and that God will let you into heaven because of that? Do you think that God is impressed with your righteousness compared to other humans? Sorry, he's not. Stop using man's ruler and start using God's ruler. We can never measure up to God's standards with our actions, with our social status, or our reputation. I mean, as Daniel said earlier, right, our good works are filthy rags in comparison to a holy God. And we'll see later that the only thing we can do is to humble ourselves and throw ourselves at God's feet and beg for mercy. And as I already said, this sin is just so sneaky. It just slips our way in there, and so we're not all out like believing in our salvation based on what our good we're doing, but we are basing our relationship on God with what we do. So I want to offer up a modern translation to see if maybe this sin is affecting you. And if the sin is not affecting you, just come back in two weeks, because it probably will be affecting you by then. The modern translation would probably go like this. Oh God, thank you that I'm not like other men, drinkers of alcohol, homosexual, card players, or like this liberal. I attend church every week. I tithe. I do my 15 minutes devotion every day, God. God's not impressed with that. He's not impressed with who you are or what you've done. And when he looks on you, he sees either a sinner saved by his son or a sinner still destined to hell. When God looks upon us, he does not see our righteousness, but rather Christ's righteousness that has been put on us. This is called imputation. All right, so we're going to go a little deep into thought, theology here. So just stay with me, all right? Imputation is the second part of justification. The first part of justification is forgiveness, where God forgives us of all of our sins through Christ's sacrifice. And this puts us kind of in a neutral state with God. No negative from sin, but also no righteousness either. And this neutral state is not good enough to be accepted by God. To be accepted, we must be righteous. Therefore, Christ must put his righteousness on us. And this righteousness is transferred to us through faith. Romans 4.3 says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Romans 5.17 goes on to talk about the gift of righteousness. I don't know about you, I've never done anything to earn gifts, right? They are free. And so there's nothing that we can do to earn this righteousness other than to have faith. 
other than to be fully trusting in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us. Now, self-righteousness was not this Pharisee's only problem. Closely related is this passing judgment on others or condemnation. And this leads us to our second point. Don't look down on others. In the same vein that the Pharisee is comparing himself with others to qualify himself as righteous, he's also looking down on others. End of verse 11. Like this tax collector. I mean, you can just you can feel the disdain. You can, you can feel the judgment, right? And, and just how he says, how he singles out this person. Just, ugh, right? <clears throat> but he is judging him by his standard and not God. Now, the Pharisee may have the correct facts about this tax collector. Tax collectors were notorious for taking advantage of people, um, being dishonest, and whatnot. And so the facts may be correct, but that doesn't give the Pharisee the right to look down on him or the right to judge him. See, the Pharisee is not God. He can't see people's hearts. He can't pass judgment on other people. That is God's job and God's job alone. And amen to that, right? I am glad that I do not have to sit and judge all of you all and make sure that your hearts are all right and, and everything. That's, just, that's God's job, not mine, not yours. And like the first point, it's... It is one of those sins that just sneaks in there so subtly without us realizing it. Today, this often looks uh, like us looking down on other people in, in many different forms. Sometimes it's very harsh, where we are calling people names, right? Or we're blasting them on Facebook, showing how stupid and ignorant they are. But a lot of times it's more subtle, and people don't even know that we're doing it. If you've ever thought to yourself, well, I don't have to listen to this person. That person's just dumb. They don't know anything. And all we're basing that on is their political party, the color of their skin, their socioeconomic status. That's wrong. If we simply write somebody off and think we don't have to listen to them because they're a millennial, a hipster, a redneck, Snowflake, whatever label that we just write off people with, then we are guilty of this sin of looking down on others. And when we need to remember, we're just as guilty as they are. They're not perfect, but neither are we. They deserve the punishment for their sins. And God will give them that punishment for their sins, just as God will give us the punishments for our sins and the discipline that we need so that we stop sinning. Remember Romans 2.14, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, 
practice the very same things. We know that the, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who, <clears throat> who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And when it says practice the same things, I think we can qualify all sin, right? I may not do that sin. I may not tell a lie. But I'm judging my brother. I may not steal. But I'm telling lies. Right? And so therefore we're all guilty of sin. And so we can't judge people. We tend to judge those who are different than us. Because we often see different as wrong rather than just different. Sometimes we perceive these people as a threat to the way things are, and so we try to discredit them. So nobody will listen to their perspective. Nobody will listen to their opinions. No one will listen to their ideals. We label them wrong, dumb, socialist, or whatever word that makes, makes everyone think that they're just that, dumb and wrong, and that they shouldn't be listened to. But once again, we're measuring others by our ruler. And the danger as Christians is we mistake our ruler for God's ruler, Right? Because the things that we are calling wrong, God calls wrong. But we're over-exaggerating one of those things, or we're prioritizing God's wrong. We, we pick and choose which sins are acceptable and which ones are not, when all sin is unacceptable to God. For example, homosexuality. It's wrong. The Bible clearly states that it is wrong. You know what else is wrong? Premarital sex. You know what I don't see? The same judgment of this sin from Christians. Now, I'm not saying I want to see us being harsher on premarital sex. I'm saying I want us to look at sin the way that God looks at sin. I want us to be fair and not treating others, not looking down on others simply because their sin is different than our sin. There are two things we as believers can do to help fight this self-righteousness and this judging of others. The first thing is we should mind ourselves daily that we are sinners in need of a Savior. The thought we are saved and sanctified, still, we need that today, and that's the gospel, Right? We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. It's a wonderful practice where we remind ourselves there is nothing good in us, and the only good that is in us is put there by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second thing that I think helps with this is to form relationships with those we disagree with, those who are different than us. You know, it's really hard to judge someone that you know and that you care about. It's easy to hate someone you don't know and that you've created in your mind for the purpose of hating. What I mean is easy to hate a stereotype or a made-up person 
hard to love, it's hard to hate someone when they're right there. And you get to see that they're just, they're not this stereotype. There's so much more depth to them. So I want to tell a little story about my life and just how God has, has used relationships to help me in this area of not being judgmental. Uh, specifically, I think in the areas of race and politics. So I grew up on a small hobby farm uh, in a town very similar to Andover, right? Close to the big city, in this transition from kind of a rural farming community to full-on suburb with houses everywhere, right? This is the neighborhood that everyone wanted to be in. Grew up in a blue-collar family. My dad, to this day, is still a machinist and tool and die. And, and most people in my church growing up, carpenters and plumbers and just all, all these blue-collar workers. The auto industry is huge in Michigan, and so many people uh, are part of this. And we worked hard for everything that we had. We struggled to get by. I mean, I, seriously, I spent like every weekend fixing up the car just so it would last the next week. We ate day-old bread, hand-me-down clothes from Goodwill, right? <clears throat> I grew up in a very just typical blue-collar home. I was taught to always vote re Republican because that's what Christ good Christians do. The lines were drawn for me. My, my, my life was defined, right? Everything Republican is good. Everything Democratic is bad. Christians are saved. Catholics are going to hell. Poor people are lazy. Blacks tend to be criminals and lazy. Immigrants are just taking all of our jobs and driving down wages. Welfare is bad, and all of our tax money that the government takes is going to that. Cities are evil, right? Nothing good takes place there. Nothing was wrong with flying the rebel flag. Affirmative action just reverse racism. And, and we grew up believing that, you know, the criminals fully got what they deserved because they broke the law and that cops never did anything wrong. You know, all the typical white culture things. You see, at this time in my life, there was really only two black kids that I knew, the token black kids in our high school. And what made it worse is one of them was a troublemaker. And so this only went to strengthen the stereotypes. Now, the community I lived in, they didn't see themselves as racist or judgmental. To them, these were just the facts of life. And because this was their reality, everyone else must be wrong because they're living the same reality that I'm living in, right? But see, then God, in his sense of humor, called me into inner city ministry. This self-proclaimed redneck who loved everything country, who took most of his theology from country songs and, and America, was called to the ghetto. So he had got, God had gotten a hold of my life, and he had called me into ministry. And as I was preparing for that ministry, uh, which I thought would just be in your typical you know, church, he put me in some other situations. He put me in some other ministries where I was forced to get to know people in the inner city, get to know people of color, get to know people who were different than me. He introduced me to other Christians who experienced life differently. Their reality was different 
than my reality. And I got to see just how much they loved the Lord. And I got to see their reality. I got more facts than I was given living in my one area. I started to understand that these people were not wrong. They weren't dumb. They did have different facts. They had different experiences. I learned about the systems that cause people who are poor to live where they live or to keep them poor. I started to realize uh, more of what I had been taught were actually just false and stereotypes. I, just, I started to see just how hard poor people worked, yet they remained poor. They could not get ahead. I started to see all the evils that have gone into shaping the ghetto. I started to see that racial profiling and driving while black were real things and not the liberal media's agenda. I started to realize that there was no Christian political party and that my theology needed to be founded on scripture and not what others told me scripture said. I started to see my own faults and how much of what my ancestors did contributed to the judgment and disadvantage of people who were different than them. And I realized how my ignorance and keeping up these ignorant stereotypes had continued to contribute to this problem. I started to see that I was just, just as flawed as they were. I just had different flaws. And so I couldn't look down on them and in fact, I needed them. I needed their perspective so that I could see the errors in my life. And because they've had different experiences, they have different solutions to the problem that I could never come up with because that's not my reality. That's not even my problem that I've thought about fixing. But since it's their problem and they've spent much of time thinking about it, they have valid things to bring to the table to make everybody, to make society better. See, their relationships moved me from being self-righteous, from looking down on them and seeing them as wrong, to just seeing them as different, seeing them as valuable because of these differences. And this is the attitude that we as Christians should have. That we should see them as image bearers of God. I did not get all the attributes that God got. I did not get all the gifts from God. But in this body, in this church, we all show those gifts differently. We all have different attributes of God or, or different qualities, right? Like my wife is far more creative than I am, right? God, one of his attributes, create, create, being creative, right? As we look at creation, we see that. But God has put more of that in my wife than he has put in me. God is empathetic. He understands our struggles, right? He cares that. My wife is much more empathetic than me. And so I can't look at my wife and be like, well, she's wrong because she's just up in our emotions about this other person, right? 
No, I need that different perspective. I need my brothers and sisters in Christ who are, look different than me, who are a different colored skin tone than me. That's, that's why I feel called to multi-ethnic church. Because I want relationships with those other people who are different than me, who have different facts, who have different experiences in life, who understand God better in other areas than me. So that my understanding of God, my understanding of the world can be more informed by listening to them instead of just discrediting them. And it's really the gospel, right? This is what unifies us. Because under the gospel, we see that we are all sinners and we stand solely on the cross for our righteousness. And that unifies us and that makes things better. Now, the other solution to this, point three, is to be humble. And up to this point, you may have been wondering, what does this have to do with prayer? Well, I'm glad you asked. As I've already stated, much of this sermon has to do with our heart and our attitude more than our actions. And so we've been talking about these attitudes and how we should have proper attitudes, mostly with one another, but also with our Lord as we go to him in prayer. We need to remember our place, that we are sinners. He is righteous. And therefore, we should not be going to him thinking that he owes us anything, as the Pharisee did. But we should rather go to him in a posture of humility, like the tax collector. What I think is ironic about this uh, parable is that the Pharisee is glad that he is not the tax collector, when in fact he should be envious that he is not the tax collector. He believes himself justified, when in fact the tax collector is. Humility is defined as having a realistic appreciation of your strengths and your weaknesses. In other words, humility is having the proper view of oneself and others. Everything in the story reveals that the heart of the tax collector when he came to pray, he stood far off, not trying to draw attention to himself like the Pharisee. This also shows that he knew his sins and that he knew his place before God. That he should not just run up to God and just take it lightly, but he understood the weight of his sin. He understood his lowly place. And so he beat his chest as he was praying, which was a common sign of showing grief or sorrow in the day. Many people were, would beat their chests when they were at funerals. This is how they mourned back then. Further, the Pharisee didn't even look up to God. He was bowed down in fear. And not the scary fear like he was afraid God was going to strike him with a lightning bolt, but this respectful fear, this awe of who God is and his holiness. So just like the tax collector came to, to God humbly, we too should come to God humbly. Both for salvation and for prayer. First, we must come humbly to God for salvation. Um, 
We must come to God understanding that we are sinners and that we deserve God's wrath, which is a big word for God's righteous anger against sin. We must also understand that we are helpless to do anything about our condition, and that is why we need his grace and mercy. His grace comes to us in the form of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, lived a perfect life among us, and died for our sins on the cross. In doing so, he defeated sin and death. And as we talked about earlier, Jesus justifies us both by forgiving our sins and putting his righteousness on us. And the only way to receive this is by faith. And faith is when we fully rely on Christ's death and resurrection for our salvation. Not our own merits, not our good deeds, not anything that we do, like going to church, praying, on and on and on. The Christian punch list. It's only on Christ. Now, as James said, our faith should lead us to obedience. And once again, our actions are determined by our heart. Secondly, we need to come to God in prayer humbly, understanding that we are sinners and that God owes us nothing. And so when we go to God in prayer, we should not have the attitude of a spoiled child. We should not expect to get everything we want. We should rely on his good character and that he will give us what is best for us. Because God sees us as his children, and he is full of love, and he's full of mercy, and he gives lots of both. And this is why we can come boldly to God in prayer. Oh, so I said boldly, not arrogantly. And we can be confident that he is a good father and that he knows what is best for us and that he will do what is best for us. And what is best for us brings him the most glory and what is best for us may not look like what's best for us by our standards. I often think of a child asking for candy, Right? Child wants that sucker oh so bad. Tastes good. That, that child knows like that is good for them, right? And it would make them happy. And as a father or anyone really, right, we know that that sucker would make them happy. But we also know that they need to eat a well-balanced meal. That they need to eat their dinner before they eat the sucker. We know that too many suckers can lead to diabetes and cavities or the ability not to listen. And so therefore, the good father does not give the sucker to the kid or does not give too many suckers to the kid. And so it is with God. He knows what's best for us. He knows the best time to give it to us. And part of our humility is understanding that and trusting that he is doing the best job and therefore, we should not doubt him when we pray and wait for him to answer. So where are you today? Are you coming to God in your own righteousness? Are you relying on your good deeds to save you? Are you relying on your good deeds to earn you favor with God so that he'll answer your prayers, so that he'll bless you, so that he'll make your life go really good? Do you realize that you owe God everything and that you need his mercy because of the good that you've failed to do and the bad that you've done? 
So as I close, I want to leave you with the closing passage of this parable. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father God, I just ask that your spirit would search each and every one of us right now. I pray that your spirit would point out to us areas of our life where we are relying on our own good deeds to be justified before you. Father, I pray that you would point out areas in our lives where we are looking down and condemning other people because they're just simply different than us. Their sin looks different. Father, help us to see this sin. Help us to then rule out this sin because it's only through your, your Son and through the power of your Spirit that we can get rid of this sin in our lives, Lord. Father, help us to accurately see ourselves. Help us not to think too highly or too lowly of ourselves, but help us to see ourselves the way you see us, as fully loved children, children ransomed by your Son. Father, help us to be humble when we approach you and humble when we approach others. Help us to seek our theology from your word and not just from folklore and what the other Christians said. Father, help us to just be fully devoted followers of Christ. Help us to be conformed more to the image of your Son. Help us to have the attitude of the Apostle Paul where we can say, I am what I am because of my Savior. May we always be pointing to you, Lord, through our works, through our deeds. It's in your wonderful and powerful name we just ask all this. Amen.